0: Mark chapter 6, before we get to it, there's a am going to read you a, a devotion written by a lady who, with her husband uh, and small children, live as pioneer missionaries in Somalia. The title of the devotion is called Abandon, One Life to Give. Before the devotion, it said, editor's note, The chapters for days 10 and 11 are written by a couple who have worked among the Somalis in the United States for 15 years. They are now assigned to Somalia. I asked the wife if she really understood the cost and implications of living in Somalia. Was she really ready to die? Was she ready to live the rest of her life as a widow? Was she ready to leave her three children as orphans? What follows are some excerpts of her response. Here's her response. You asked how I feel about the dangers, the possibilities of harm and death that could be involved in following through on this calling. In prayer, I cry with Jesus over these matters, over the ramifications on our children, my husband, me, our marriage, and the work. We cry together. Jesus speaks to me comfortingly. All die. I know these words may not comfort all, but they comfort me. They mean so much to me, these two words. They give me peace. They humble me. They bring me clarity. They ground me with new perspective for living well. We do not live free from pressure. We feel watched. I'm not always sure whom to trust in the community. I've had nightmares here of what could happen. I have picked up the phone and heard shouting in Somali. I've been chased down the street by a Somali man clearly asking from me what he should never have asked. I've had friends who Somalis have harassed. We have American friends who constantly misunderstand us and wish we'd forget about these Somalis. It affects the clothes I wear and what my young daughters wear, but I don't think we pay too high a price. I feel what I can do is obey. I feel what I can do is trust God. I feel what I can do is walk with the Lord. We do all die. We have one life to live to give. One life. How could I do anything but that to which I'm called? There's much to fear. Things I can think of cause me to tremble. Things I know I cannot think of bring me much trembling. I know there are costs. Some costs I can see, and some I know I don't see yet or never will. And as I take my mind to Jesus, I lose the fears. I find that peace doesn't originate with me and goes deep enough for me to stand in. I find joy in His leading and what He is leading me into. I can begin to see how great, how my great Lord is piecing many things together, considering all our needs and desires. Death is so normal. Death touches all. Death often comes unannounced. I cannot control it, nor will I be ruled by some irrational fear of it. What fools who do? I most likely won't know when it's coming. It could come today or tomorrow. Harm the same. I feel that God is doing something great in our lives. I dream to live long and peacefully and joyfully in Somalia. Lead and establish and rise with the empowerment of Jesus to the unbelievable task ahead. I intend to make a home that exalts Christ in all things. I intend to lead my children in joy. I intend to love my husband here long and well. The possibility of death will not rule me. And I feel I would be a fool to think that my life anywhere is free from death. I hope that God's work in my heart is not a sign of what we must face. I see it as a terrible, meaning huge and strong, privilege to serve God among these lost. And I surrender with great joy to His plan, trusting however He plans to sow our lives. Her name is Amy Cleveland. When I first read the devotion a couple of years ago, I really, I mean, I thought it was good. It was a good devotion, but it didn't really impact me. And I read it last week as a part of a new series of devotion I'm reading. And it really did impact me greatly. And I wrote in my journal that day, All die. I'm not afraid of dying. But I am afraid of living without meaning and purpose. I would rather die tomorrow serving Jesus than live a lukewarm life and die peacefully in my sleep at the ripe old age of a hundred. I was praying in Psalm 39 this morning and the psalmist prays for God to make him know how transient his life is. Transient means lasting only a short time. I don't want to fool myself into thinking I'm going to live forever in this life and so always live going to serve Jesus tomorrow. I want to live dead to myself and live holy for Christ. Dying is not a tragedy for all I. The tragedy is wasting our lives. I don't want to live a tragic life. Today we're going to look at the story of a man who knew what it was to obey Jesus, to live for Jesus, and then to give the last full measure of devotion to Jesus. Open your Bible to Mark 6. We're going to start reading in verse 14. It should be page 766 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm just going to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Mark 6 and 14 says, And King Herod... Heard about it. Heard about Jesus. For his name had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he's Elijah. And others were saying, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard about it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent men. Had John arrested and bound... In prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing he was a righteous and a holy man, and he had been protecting him. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, and he used to enjoy listening to him. An opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, held a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading uh, leading people of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and asked her mother, what shall I give? What shall I ask for? And her mother said, the head of John the Baptist, immediately, she came in a hurry to the king, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, because of his oaths and his dinner guest, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about this, they came and carried away his body and laid it in a tomb. The title of the message this morning is Faithful Unto Death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. You are great and glorious, wonderful and worthy. Help us, O oh God, to have a ever-growing understanding of how great and wonderful you truly are. Father, Your Word is filled with examples of people who after they knew You, they gave their lives to serve You. Father, their, their lives changed radically and drastically because of who You were and what You had done in their lives. Father, some, some did live easy, pleasant lives. But many others lived hard, painful lives. Lives filled with suffering, lives that ended in a painful death. Both were loved by you. Both were men and women of faith. Both were accomplishing your will in the world. And Lord, we know we would all like to say, well, obviously, God's plan for me is the the life of peace and ease and comfort. But really, what are the chances? That we're all called to a life of ease and comfort. And none are called to a life of difficulty and suffering and death. Now we don't seek pain and suffering and death. For the sake of pain and suffering and death. We're we're not wanting to flog ourselves to show our righteousness. But what we want to be are men and women. Who are so deeply devoted as disciples of Jesus. That if you're calling on our life is ease and comfort, then we will glorify You in the way we use the ease and the comfort You give us. We'll not be taken by it. We'll not be trapped by it. We'll not be enslaved by it. But we will use it to advance Your kingdom and to glorify Your name. And we want to be devoted to You so that if Your plan for our life, if it is pain and suffering and death, that we would endure those things well. We would endure them for your glory. We would never deny your name. And like John, we would give that last full measure of devotion to Jesus and be faithful unto death. Guide me this morning, Father, that I would speak your word clearly. Help me to say what you once said, nothing more and nothing less. Let your Holy Spirit empower me. And let your Holy Spirit open our ears to receive what you have for us today. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the death of John the Baptist is another rejection of one of God's prophets by people in power. The death of John the Baptist casts somewhat of an ominous shadow on the life and the ministry of Jesus. Jesus' life and His ministry are in jeopardy because of His miraculous deeds, His extraordinary claims, and His authoritative teaching. Human sin... And Satan resist and reject the claims and the aims of Jesus as he seeks to, as he goes about trying to seek and save those who are lost. What we see in this passage is less about a man overcome by a bad guy. It's really not John was in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's not the story of an oppressive government pushing against a righteous man. What we see in this passage is a clash between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. John the Baptist was caught in the middle of this clash because of his faithfulness to Jesus. And this is part of what we have to understand here. Right? John wasn't in the wrong place at the wrong time. The conflict resulting in John's death is a direct result of John's faithfulness to Jesus. You and I are in the same conflict today. As we look around the world, we can see the spiritual darkness deepening. The, darkening, uh, the deepening of spiritual darkness is seen when all forms of sexual immorality are acceptable. When marriage is often viewed as something easily tossed away. When violence has become common. Mass murderers mass murders really aren't shocking. And people have perverted value systems that call evil good and good evil. All of this deepening darkness can make faithfulness to Jesus difficult, and yet, this is how we're supposed to live. No matter how deep the darkness gets, no matter how much the evil abounds, you and I as disciples of Jesus are still called to faithfulness. To a what we might even call a radical level of faithfulness. I'm reminded of the words of Jesus to the church at Smyrna who was suffering. They were suffering. He tells them it's about to get worse. What was his next words to them? Be ye faithful unto death. To this we're called. This is the kind of faithfulness every disciple of Jesus is called to live in. Be faithful unto death. And so this is our key truth for the day. Disciples of Jesus must be faithful to Jesus Even to the point of death. This passage teaches us three areas where we must be faithful to Jesus. Number one, we must be faithful to the name of Jesus. Now, while there isn't a a lot of love for the church and our culture today, Jesus is still pretty popular. He's popular as a moral teacher he's popular as an example of kindness and love he's popular as a as a sort of a super sensitive non-judgmental just love one another feelings guru but he's not popular as god in the flesh he's not really popular as the savior who died on the cross for the sins of the world and rose again he's not popular as lord who commands his followers to deny themselves take up their crosses go And make disciples of all nations. And yet that is who Jesus is. The confusion we see about Jesus in our culture didn't start with our generation though. There has always been this sort of confusion. We see it in our text. As Jesus begins to be famous, as word about him begins to come about, many begin to to have these ideas about who he is. They see the things he's doing, they hear the words he's teaching, the crowds he's gathering, and they begin to speculate on who he is. We're going to start with Herod in verse 17. I'm sorry, 16. But when Herod heard about it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, is risen. Herod wonders if Jesus, as John the Baptist, come back to life. We, We know that he wonders this because he had John the Baptist killed. Now, we know from other places... Herod knew John was a righteous and a holy man. He knew he had done nothing deserving of death. Herod's thinking, Jesus is John the Baptist, is based upon guilt. Herod has a sense of guilt over what he's done. And he wonders, is, is Jesus, John, come back to torment me because of the evil deed I've done? And guilt can influence Our thinking about who Jesus is when this is the case, we're motivated by desire to ease our conscience, but not really a desire to live as deeply devoted disciples of Jesus. You see this when, when people do something that brings negative consequences into their lives. right? They do something, they get caught, there are problems they start to face in their life because of it. So they, they come to church or they go see the pastor, they, they cry, they confess, they promise to do better. Often they make these big, bold proclamations about how they're going to live for Jesus from this point on. And it lasts only as long as the guilty feelings do. And once the guilty feelings go away, so does the devotion to Jesus. It may take days, weeks, months, but once the guilt subsides, all they confessed and promised regarding Jesus falls by the wayside. In that moment, there was very little desire to have a genuine relationship with Jesus. And there was certainly no desire to embrace Him as Lord of their lives and live as deeply devoted disciples of Jesus. They just felt bad and they needed something to soothe their conscience. Others thought Jesus was maybe Elijah or one of the prophets. As they looked at Jesus, they saw someone who was very different than anything they'd ever seen before. On the one hand, He was meek and lowly in heart, but also... He was mighty in teaching God's Word, mighty in performing miracles. They knew he, he had to be something significant. But they couldn't quite take the step to embrace him as Messiah, the Son of God. Extraordinary, yes, but not quite the Messiah. Extraordinary. He's, he's like Elijah, the great prophet of old, or, or just like any of the other prophets, but not the Messiah. I mean, they had a high view of him, but not the right view of him. Problem is, Jesus is not Elijah. He is not like one of the prophets of old. He is something entirely different. Making up an idea about who Jesus is isn't new either. Several years after Jesus ascended into heaven, and just before the last apostles passed from the scene, the answer to the question, who is Jesus, was answered in that he was a divine being who posed as human, but was not fully human. This is an early form of a heresy called Gnosticism. Second and third John rebuke this. Tell us this is not Jesus. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, the answer to who is Jesus was that Jesus was a social worker. The social gospel these people promoted focused almost exclusively on Jesus' teaching of caring for the poor and the needy. They promoted the idea that if you follow these teachings and his example of caring for the poor and the needy, you're okay with God regardless of what else you may do or what else you may believe. Jesus is a caring social worker. The overall gospel reveals to us this is not Jesus. One of the modern answers to who is Jesus has to do with Jesus being a being of absolute inclusion. This Jesus would never tell you how to live your life so long as you don't hurt others. This Jesus would say love is love. This Jesus would never tell you something in your life that makes you happy is a sin. This Jesus just loves you and accepts everyone as they are and would never dream of changing their lives in any way. And yet the life of Jesus as revealed in the Gospels shows us this isn't Jesus. If we're going to be faithful to Jesus, then we must be faithful to the name of Jesus. And if we're going to be faithful to the name of Jesus, we cannot have merely a a guilt-ridden confession about who Jesus is. We cannot let the, the, the thinking of the day determine who Jesus is. We must come to Jesus and let Him tell us Who he is. We must come to God's revelation in his word and let it tell us who Jesus is. And as we come to God's word, who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is God. Jesus is fully God, completely God. He and the Father are one. Jesus is so fully God, all of the attributes of God dwelled in him bodily. And it was not something added to him. It was a part of his nature as to who he had always been. But not only is Jesus God, Jesus is God in the flesh. right? So the Gnosticism said Jesus was supernatural but not man. The fact is Jesus is supernatural. He is God but he is also man. He's not 50% God and 50% man. He is 100% God and 100% man. This is the miracle of the Incarnation. Jesus lived among us. Jesus walked among us. Jesus was tempted like we are. Jesus, as God in the flesh, is such a significant doctrine that to deny Jesus as human is to deny Jesus altogether. Jesus is God. Jesus is God in the flesh, but Jesus died for our sin. Jesus didn't just die. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus' death has no significance apart from Him dying for our sins. Modern ideas are Jesus died as an example. An example of, of love, an example of an oppressive government showing how they oppress things. All of these other things, but not for our sins. The reality, Jesus' death means nothing if He didn't die for our sins. Imagine for a second. Imagine for a second. Kelly and I are are walking down the road. And we're near the train tracks. And the train's coming. Now, we're far away from it. We're, We're to the other side of the road from it. And the train's coming. And I sit there and I say, Kelly, I love you. Let me show you how much. And I run and jump in front of the train and let it squash me. Would she live the rest of her life thinking, my husband loved me so much, what an example. No, she would live her life thinking, i married a moron. What an idiot. That was stupid. But what if we're walking on the train tracks and the train's coming and for some reason we didn't hear it until it was right upon us and I pushed her out of the way, but in pushing her out of the way I made it so that I couldn't get out of the way and I died saving her. One of those shows love and accomplishes something. One of those is just dumb. Jesus wasn't dumb. God's plan wasn't dumb. Jesus pushed us out of the way of the wrath of God coming on our sins and He absorbed it on our behalf. Jesus did not just die. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus also rose from the dead. Literally, physically, bodily rose from the dead. It's also an important part. It's such an important part. 1 Corinthians 15 says, If Jesus is not risen, we are all still in our sins. We are of all people most miserable and should be pitied upon the earth. Jesus rose from the dead. And then Jesus is Lord. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Everybody will do it. Right, Those of us who are disciples of Jesus, we have already done it. But those who reject Jesus, who arrogantly defy Jesus, the day will come when they will stand before the great white throne of judgment and they too will bow the knee and make the confession. But it will not be the confession and the bowing of a grateful subject amazed at the love of a Lord. It will be the fearful, horrible bowing Of one standing in judgment and about to hear the words, depart from me. I never knew you. Jesus is Lord. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And if we are not confessing these things about Jesus, we are not faithful to the name of Jesus. And if we are not faithful to the name of Jesus, we are not faithful to Jesus. Disciples of Jesus must be faithful to Jesus even to the point of death. And this means being faithful to the name of Jesus. Secondly, we must be faithful to the message of Jesus. Now, what put John the Baptist in Herod's crosshairs? Now remember John's, John's job. John was sent as the forerunner to prepare the way for Jesus. He came to preach about the law. People had sinned. They needed to turn to God. And he was going to be the one to point out the Messiah when he came. So John preached the law. When people came, John called them on their sin, told them to turn from their sin. When Jesus came, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. And he began to point people to Jesus from then on. So this is what John did. John preached about sin... John preached about Jesus. And John preached about repentance. So still, what put him in in Herod's crosshairs? John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, John clearly had not read any books on how to win friends and influence people. Herod has superpower over that area. He can literally just arrest John and put him to death at will. Herod has left his wife, Herod's new wife, has left her husband, who is Herod's brother, and they are together and they are living as man and wife. John the Baptist, he's making his living calling people on their sin. But Herod, I mean, there's one thing to call a religious leader or a tax collector or a prostitute on their sin, but to call the tetrarch, to call the governor, the ruler of the area, on his sin, he did. And he wasn't general about it. He didn't just say Herod's probably sin too. He said, "Herod, it is not lawful for you to be with Herodias. She is your brother's wife." Well, Herodias held a grudge, and she was not happy. And so John was put in prison. Now Herodias wanted him dead, but John just liked her, but Herod protected him. He was the boss, he had to say. And he liked to listen to him, although it perplexed him and kind of made him afraid. You would think John knew preaching against the the not nice ruler of your region is not a safe way to live your life. You would think John knew this would be an unpopular position to take against the most powerful man in your region. And yet... He did it. And I have to believe, based upon the fact he dies, I have to believe that when he talked to Herod in what seems to be one-on-one, his message was still the same. I would assume, had he said, I'll go out and say I was wrong, I'll go out and say God told me that, that this was a righteous thing, he probably could have been let go. So my assumption, because he didn't get out and he died badly, is that when Herod came to see him, he said, Hey, Herod, guess what? It's a sin for you to have your brother Philip's wife. You should repent of your sin. You should break up your union. You should go back to your wife. And so he remained in prison. He was faithful to the message God had given him. And he was faithful to the message God had given him, even though it meant he ended up dying we too are called to be faithful with the message of Jesus. And the primary message God has given us today is the Gospel, the message of Jesus. But just as Jesus isn't whoever we want Him to be, He is someone specific. Being faithful the message of Jesus is something specific as well. It's not something we get to make up. The Gospel can be presented in a number of different ways with a number of different kind of ways to do it, but there are certain elements that must be present if we're going to say we were being faithful with the message of Jesus, the gospel. First, we must say Jesus. It is not enough to say God from Kabbalah to Mormons to Jehovah's Witnesses to the Church of Scientology, even Oprah. There are broad ideas about what is meant when you say God. The days of saying, I believe in God and people knowing that means the God of the Bible, the Christian God, Yahweh, who had a son named Jesus, are long gone and they are not likely to return. So when we say God and we talk to people about God and living for God and knowing God and asking God for forgiveness, people tend to interpret it however they want it to be. And we end up having a conversation where we're saying one thing and they're saying something entirely different. But we think we're having the same conversation. We cannot just say God. We must say Jesus. Jesus creates a dividing line. Jesus brings clarity to exactly who we're talking about. We must say Jesus. Jesus is the message. Jesus is the gospel. Specifically, the gospel centers on the death, the resurrection of Jesus. It's not just about a guy named Jesus who lived a long time ago and died tragically at the hand of an oppressive religious establishment. no. The gospel is about Jesus, the son of the living God who came to earth, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead to prove all he had said was true and that he could forgive sins and save the lost. If we do not clearly explain the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, we have not been faithful to the message of Jesus. We must say Jesus. But not only must we say Jesus, we must address sin. We cannot faithfully explain the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus without addressing sin. This is unpopular. And this is where the offense of the gospel comes in. But we must address it anyway. It gets back to what I mentioned earlier. Why did Jesus die? Jesus died for sin. But it's not enough to even say Jesus died for sin. We have to get very specific. Jesus died for sin, but why do I need Jesus? Jesus died for my sin. Why do you need Jesus? Jesus died for your sin. Part of explaining the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is explaining all of sin, falling short of the glory of God. People must understand they have sinned against a holy God and are justly condemned for their sin. Sin is not some bad thing out there somewhere. Sin is something we have all done. Sin is not merely a mistake we've made. Sin is rebellion against the rule and the reign of Almighty God. And if people do not understand this, they will never understand the significance of Jesus' death on the cross on their behalf. And if people do not understand the significance of Jesus' death on the cross on their behalf, they will never see their need for Jesus. And they will never call on Jesus. And they will never be saved by Jesus. Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin. And it is only when we understand our guilt do we see our need for salvation. If people do not understand Jesus died for their sin, they do not uh, they do not understand the gospel of Jesus. If people do not believe Jesus died for their sin, they do not believe the gospel of Jesus. If we have not addressed sin, we have not been faithful with the message of Jesus. And then finally we must call for a response. There are two proper responses to the message of Jesus, the gospel, repentance and faith. When the Apostle Paul gave his final message to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he told them he had testified both to Jews and to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith are the only proper responses to the gospel. Feeling bad is not the proper response, though it's often a part of repentance. Vowing to make a change is not the proper response, though hopefully making a change follows Faith, repentance, and faith. Being baptized is not the proper response. Baptism follows after repentance and faith. Repentance and faith, those are the responses. Not, you know, you're right, I should do better. That's not the right response. That has not saved them. Not, gosh, I feel bad, you've made me feel really bad. Well, good, you should feel bad. You're a terrible human. That's not the proper response. They are not saved. Not, I'm going to come to church more. I'm going to be nicer to my wife. I'm going to be better dad. All of those things are good. should flow out of the proper response. But they are not the proper response. The only saving response to the gospel is a change of mind about God and sin, repentance. Turning to Jesus, calling on Him to save us, and saying, I need you to save me. I am lost. I am undone. And apart from you, I have no hope in the world. No one has properly responded to the gospel without repentance and faith. Someone who has not repented and has not believed is not saved, no matter what else they may do. And we have not been faithful with the message of Jesus if we do not call people to repent and believe. The message of Jesus is not always going to be popular. Faithfulness to the message of Jesus is not always going to be acceptable. There are going to be times when faithfulness to the message of Jesus will put us at odds with family, with friends, co-workers, politicians, any number of other people. The reason faithfulness to the message of Jesus puts us at odds with others is because the message of Jesus provides us with absolutes. The message of Jesus is always right and anything contradicting them is always wrong. The message of Jesus is always right. And anything contradicting them is always wrong. Even if it makes someone mad. Even if it hurts someone's feelings. Even if it seems exclusive instead of inclusive. Even if it's culturally and socially unacceptable to believe and say these things. Even if, no matter what, we fill in that blank. The message of Jesus is always right. These elements, we must say Jesus, we must address sin, we must call for a response, are always right. And anything contradicting them is always wrong, no matter what. Faithfulness for disciples of Jesus are meant to be faithful to Jesus, even to the point of death. And this means being faithful to the message of Jesus. And then finally, be faithful while suffering for Jesus. Verses 20-29 through detail John's arrest and death, and we don't have time to go into detail about what happens. Uh, You can take time and, and read it this week. But there are a few points I want to make. First, notice that Herodias wanted to kill John the Baptist, but Herod protected him. Also notice that Herod liked to hear John the Baptist. But then, finally, Herod ordered John the Baptist to be executed because of an oath he had taken. Everything that happened to John the Baptist from his arrest, to his imprisonment, to his death happened because he chose to remain faithful to Jesus rather than to abandon his faithfulness to Jesus. John would rather die than be unfaithful to Christ. The kind of suffering John the Baptist endured isn't unusual in God's Word. We know that. It's not unusual in church history. We know that. But what we may not realize is it's not even uncommon in our day. I read about a disciple of Jesus in India who is an evangelist to His people. His faithfulness to Jesus had cost Him greatly. His house had been burned down while they were in it and they had escaped. All His stuff had been destroyed. He had been imprisoned for His house being burned down. He had been forced to be homeless because no landlord would rent an apartment to him because the house might be burnt down. And when asked by a fellow from Voice of the Martyrs how to pray for him, he said, pray, I will continue to be faithful as an evangelist because persecution is not an accident. It is the expectation. Suffering for Jesus isn't an if thing. It's a when thing and a how thing. When will it happen to us? And how will we respond when it does? How will we respond when our faithfulness to Jesus begins to be costly on a personal level? How will we respond when faithfulness to Jesus begins to cost us financially, physically, relationally or vocationally? What will we do when that happens? I can tell you on the authority of God's Word how Jesus wants us to respond. He wants us to remain faithful to Him even in the midst of suffering. Disciples of Jesus must be faithful to Jesus even to the point of death. And this means be faithful even while suffering. And I was going to end the message asking... If we were ready to be faithful unto death, but I realized at this moment in Gaiman, Oklahoma, being faithful to Jesus is not likely to require us to be faithful unto death. So I want to ask a different question: Is your life marked by daily faithfulness to Jesus right now? Right now in Gaiman, Oklahoma, daily faithfulness to Jesus isn't costly. And it doesn't require anything that resembles radical obedience on our behalf. Faithfulness to Jesus right now in Guyman, Oklahoma looks like being faithful to love Jesus with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. Be faithful to love others as we love ourselves. Be faithful to attend the church Jesus died to build. Be faithful to read God's word and pray daily. Be faithful to talk to others about Jesus. Be faithful to be generous with the provisions Jesus has given us. Be faithful to live in according to Jesus' moral standards. Be faithful to remember we are Jesus' ambassadors everywhere we go. And so not do anything to bring shame on the name of Jesus. Be faithful to be more devoted to Jesus than we are to a political party, a national identity, or any human relationship. Be faithful to deny ourselves, take up our crosses daily, and follow Jesus. Those are the basics of what daily faithfulness to Jesus looks like. And if we aren't faithful to Jesus right now in these basics when it's easy, what would make us think we would be faithful to Jesus when things get hard? If I if I cannot be faithful to Jesus in these things when it costs me nothing, isn't it a delusion to think I will be faithful to Jesus in these things when it costs me something? We're going to have a time of response this morning. And as we do, we need to think long and hard about our lives. Are our lives marked by daily faithfulness to Jesus? If they're not, we need to ask ourselves, why not? It's it's not because Jesus has changed. It's not because we have worked out our own deal with God. It's not because the Word of God doesn't mean what it says. If we're not, there is something in us that is not as it should be. And if we aren't faithful to Jesus daily then we need to spend this time, if we, if we would say we're disciples of Jesus, we're saved, and we need to spend this time repenting of being unfaithful to Jesus in our lives and plead with Him to give us the mercy and the grace He has promised to give us to help us in our time of need. If our lives are not marked by faithfulness, maybe we need to ask ourselves, am I even genuinely saved? Have I truly been born again? If not, that's the need today. The need is to repent of your sin. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is where everything starts. Even if you wrote down the list of all these things I said about faithfulness and you did them apart from repenting and believing, you would not be saved. Even if you did them perfectly for a thousand years, you would not be saved by your good deeds. We are only saved through faith in Christ. And so I suggest there is a very real chance for some their lack of faithfulness is simply because they have never truly been born again. Today I urge you, repent of your sins. I urge you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from your sins. Believe what God has said about them. Let go of your self-righteousness. Let go of your self-sufficiency. Cling to the cross. Cling to Jesus. For He and He alone saves. I believe. I believe the days ahead are going to be difficult days. And I believe the days ahead will separate the sheep from the goat. Those who are not faithful in ease are not going to be faithful in difficulties. And if we want to be sure we're faithful to Jesus, then we had better spend this time when it's easy crying out for Jesus to make us faithful now. So I ask you to stand